Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Saigon podcast. My name is Neil Mackay and I'm your host as always. My guest today is Daniel Doan. Daniel is a Saigonier. He was born and raised here in Ho Chi Minh City and he owns an American bistro called Hungry Bunny here in Saigon. So let's talk about that. And so what was it, what's it like being brought up in uh, Ho Chi Minh City? It's hard for me to imagine because this is just such a sprawling concrete metropolis and I'm from Scotland we have green hills and mountains what's it like as a child here it's, it wasn't it wasn't fun actually um, because my family is originally from the north so my parents and you know like we say it here um, they're considered northerners so they have a more conservative they're more um, strict so they want you know quote unquote um, the best things for their kids but by doing that, they pressure their kids into doing a lot of perfect, th- uh, perfecting a lot of things. You know, they want perfection. They want the, the perfect image. So I, that's a difference between North and South Vietnam? Yeah, down here, I, I don't want to sound like I, I discriminate against my own, pe- my own people, but down here, I think people tend to be more relaxed and we have a more carefree attitude towards um, many things. But um, people from the north are more traditional and they're more conservative. It's oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of that. And so is your dad. Where, where in the north is your dad from? Your mum and dad. 
Thái Hà. Okay, and how far? Like, where is that in relation to Hanoi? That's the only thing I really know in all. Uh, like an hour away from Hanoi, right. or an hour and a half. Yeah, I've been there like three or four times since mm. the day I was born. So right, right. And so, um, so going back a bit, then your dad's from the north, and then when did he move to the south? I would say more than thirty, close to forty years ago. Right after uh, the war ended. Yeah, so I was going to ask. I don't like. We don't like. We haven't really talked so much about the war in, on this podcast, and we don't really want to focus on that too much. But I do think that's interesting. So, um, why why did he move to the south then after the war? He wanted he, a better uh, a better life. Interesting. Well, because we were um, my well, my my grandparents. They were farmers, and we were very poor. And so my dad always wanted to go to college to get a good degree because back in the day, um, if you could, uh, if you could get into a college, it would be a privilege, um, like an honor to the whole family. You know, like you honor the whole family and yourself. So and you couldn't do that in the north. Yes, you can. Um, I mean, yes, you you could back then, but because of the war, so um, people were being forcefully enlisted. Um, so technically, they they force people to join the military mm. to fight against, um, you know, Americans. Yeah, and was your dad part of that? Yeah, my dad didn't want to go, but they they made him do it like involuntarily. Wow. Yeah. And does he talk much about that? Well, back in the day, he used to talk about it. I would say brag because he made it out alive, and he managed to, you know go to college and got a degree and so which was huge back then you know everybody was proud of him especially his uh, my grandpa well my grand both my grandparents yeah that's so awesome and so did has he ever spoken about like did he find face discrimination when he moved to the south if he was from the north and the north had won he never actually talked much about it um but because well he graduated um, from a very um famous university, you can say, university here mm. in Vietnam. Back in the day, it was one of the top, you know, top tier universities here in, in, the, in the whole country. So he graduated from that university with a degree in engineering. So I don't think he had that much pro um, problem blending in down here because they needed people like him down here, you know, because they were trying to expand um, down south. Yeah. And has he spoken to you much about his involvement in the war? Because I've heard from some Vietnamese friends that um, their their family like just nobody really talks about it. Like they were involved in it, but even to their own children, like they just don't talk about it, which is understandable. Yeah, I mean, he um, he 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 never actually directly or uh, on purpose actually told me about all the, the you know all the details, all the the, the fine details about the whole war and how he. And his involvement with it, uh, but I over, I've overheard him talking to his, you know, um, like his comrades. I guess yeah, yeah. 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 They would come over to, to 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 our house, and then they would go on and on and on and on about all those things. And then sometimes I would, you know, overhear them talking, mm. and I wouldn't understand a single thing. So that's the reason why I guess he never actually wanted to tell me, because I could never. He knew I could never relate to those things. Mm. You know, I never actually. Mm, cared about it that much until um, I moved to California so all the Vietnamese Americans who are still living there um, the people who used to work for the, U the US government back in the day who sided with the US and then um, um, took off and moved to America 
uh, technically they lost their country.、Mm. So they're still super bitter about it. If you go to California, especially Southern California, and you go around, you know, meeting random, you know, like the older Vietnamese generations who are living there, they're really bitter about it. And we have a huge public holiday here.、Um, it's the 30th of、uh, April. It's like the liberation of、uh, the South of Vietnam. So over there they call it the, you know, like the the Doom Day, the day they lost their nation, their flag, and everything. So if you go around, if if you're in California, I mean, especially you know SoCal, and you go around telling people that you're, you know, you're 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 like you're the son of a Viet Cong or something like that, they'll stone you. Well, not like literally, but you probably get beaten. If you're from that generation, you're probably really old.、Mm. But yeah,、um, the people. So did you feel that when you were, you're all the way in America, and you could feel that discrimination because because what would you say to people like, oh, my dad's from the north, or they would ask you like, Where, where's your family from, or no? But unless you're going around advertising that you know you're proud of it, or you you make you make it known that you know you're associated with、um, the Viet the,、uh, the Viet Cong, then you know that would drive them nuts. But how would that? How would they know that? Maybe because you, you know, you tell your friends or you go around telling people. But usually, pe- people don't just don't. They they know that you're an international student from、mm. Vietnam. You know, you know, a fobby one. You know, fresh up boat. So they say, oh, you you just got here.、Um, yeah. Is your family Viet Cong, or are you one, or are you a son of,、uh, you know? Was、so they would straight up ask that once they knew. No, no, no. They, they they never did. They never did.、Right. Or I don't think they do that actually. Yeah, because they they actually embrace、um, Vietnamese. You know, if they know that you're Vietnamese just like them, they like it until you tell them that hey, I'm Viet Cong. Then it's different. Yeah, I think. So let's go back.、Um, growing up, I think we touched on this. What's it like growing up then in Saigon? It was boring, pretty much.、Uh, everyday school, good grades. If you don't get good good grades, you get spanked.、Um, my dad said that. So here we grade、um, from on a scale of zero to ten. If you get a ten, you're excellent. You know, you get a nice gift or something if you want to as a kid. You know, but if you maybe you you down one point, you scored a nine. My dad would let it go, but if. He told me to my face that if you would get an eight, that that's two spanks, lying down at up. It was too long ago, so I can't really、um, I can't really say or、uh, that I remember being spanked for not getting a perfect score. I don't think.、Uh, so it was more of a threat than it was more、job. like a threat, you know, right, to right. push me to yeah, yeah. study really hard. Yeah, and I had that I I I had the same mentality for.、Um, Elementary school, you know, middle school and high school.、Mm-hmm. So it was really, it was a huge.、Uh, it was always a a, a race, you、mm-hmm. know, a competition for me, trying to get the best grade, to get the best GPA, or you get yelled at, you get criticized, you get ridiculed. How do you deal with that?、Mm, extra extra tutoring sessions. But I mean, like as a, as a person, like because it's so foreign to me, like so. Obviously, British parents can be the same. Mine weren't. Mine were like just, I、uh, just let me do my own thing, and I worked hard at school anyway. But I, so I never really had that external pressure. How do you deal with that as a person? How do you deal with that mentally that you're under so much pressure all the time to achieve? I guess it's a social norm. It's like an everyday thing. Even now, up to 
this day, you mm. know, a lot of kids are still going through the same thing that I went through um, 20 years oh, ago, I sure. think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's still the same pressure. Um, people, uh, parents want perfection. Parents, they, I don't want to sound like, I don't want to sound too nasty, but a lot, um, the majority of Vietnamese parents, um, especially the, the people who are living in big cities, you know, who have money, I, I don't think they they do it on purpose, but they uh, subconsciously consider their um, see their kids as like um, how do you say it uh, accessories that they can go around showing off, you know, like a trophy. Because my kids do really extremely well in school, like beat all the other kids in the same class, you know, get the best grade in the top three every month or every semester, and they they have like. Uh, uh, how do you say it? Um, like competitions for gifted students, like nationwide competitions, and I think it's just too much. You know, putting kids through so much pressure and 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 not giving them enough time to explore themselves, like what they're capable of, what their real uh, what their real passions are. You know, I was completely like my passion was and has always been music, and you know, becoming a singer or something like that. I never wanted to be like the best student student in the, in my class but and I, I was and forced I, to yeah. and I see that so like I've been an English teacher here and so yeah I can completely understand what you're saying and and I have thought that you know it's just such a shame because you feel like things like the arts here just don't get a look in right there's no I, I've not heard of seen any kid being allowed to explore themselves as an artist or a sportsman or a musician you know what I mean like it's all about grades and it's all about being the best and, and the amount of extracurricular activities they have and tutors and cl extra classes and like so why is that the mentality? Oh no actually you actually brought up like uh, sportsmanship um, athletes here are the same thing actually one thing that we have in common with Americas and maybe other western countries is that uh, when it comes to sports, we go crazy so even when, when you're not doing so well like you're like you're the worst student in the whole class but if you're an amazing athlete, they'll let you slide on oh. every single freaking test. Wow, I wasn't aware you of that. You automatically get a 10. If you have a competition coming up and you have to train really hard for it, you don't have to study for, uh, for anything. Even when it comes to like gradu um, graduation test exams mm. and maybe entrance exams to, you know, like good schools. Like if they need a really good um, uh, soccer team or a basketball team or a, swim a swimming team, and they need good athletes, you know, who have really, 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 really like nasty, bad, bad grades. They'll let you slide. Like but automatically is, accept it. Boom. This is like, again, it's so extreme. Like it's, a, it's the opposite. So then you have these gifted athletes, but they've got no education. And then what happens when they don't become a professional athlete? Then they're like dumb as rocks because they've never studied. You know, and then but the opposite is you have these students who've all got 10 out of 10, but they've had no opportunity to explore that other side of themselves. I think it's, it's the same problem uh, with all Vietnamese. We want to save face. We want the perfect image. Uh, you know, just like all Vietnamese parents and all schools, especially public schools, even private schools now these days, they want the best of both worlds, you know. Like they want good students with um they, they want students with amazing academic records and they want amazing athletes too so both you know like we have the best of both worlds so parents can come to us 
So you brought up saving face, and that's something I'd heard of before I, I, I've moved here. been here now for three years, and I kind of understand it, and I, I understand how it manifests, but I still don't fully understand it. What, what's your best explanation of this concept of saving face? You just, you're afraid to show people um, what you're not really good at, you know, um, your flaws, your imperfections. You don't embrace it. But why? What, why is that Why is that saving face? Because in the West, like, you can admit to your faults and it's seen as being like, okay. Whereas here, it gets to the point. So the example that, that, I, that I often come across, I hear lots of people use this as an example of saving face, right? You go to a restaurant, you own a restaurant, you've run out of cheddar cheese. And instead of, the wait staff coming and telling you, oh, we don't have cheddar cheese for your hamburger, but would you like another type of cheese or would you like to order something else? They just don't tell you. Or sometimes I've had friends say, well, they just don't bring the food. And then they're like, oh, where's my food? And they're like, oh, sorry, we'd run out of that. And the mentality is saving face is not admitting that they don't have the cheese or they don't have the item on the menu. But that, how is that saving? How is that better than admitting that you don't have it and then fixing the problem? I think is that is, is that an, is that an accurate example of saving face, or have I got that all wrong? It's actually quite a good example, but I have something much closer. I'll tell you okay, after on. this. But uh, I think in that case, it's more about you know not having to go through the whole um, deal um, to go through the whole hassle of dealing with the customer, not being happy or you know um, getting pissed off because oh you don't have this because you're you know even, even when you're you're. Your main focus is, you know, you sell burgers and you, you're out of cheddar cheese, you know, and you want to give me something else. You think that would be appropriate. But isn't that a bigger problem to, like, substitute it without telling them? Or a bigger problem to just not bring them meal? Because then they're going to be more pissed off anyway, you know what I mean? They don't see it that way. So that, my question is why? Like, I don't, I, so the reason is because they're saving face, right? That's the reason? It's more about how, not having to de- to deal with a unhappy customer. So it's but not they don't to do really, with saving face. Then. No, but then they don't they don't realize the fact that you know when you put something else that the customer initially or originally didn't order, they would get even more pissed off, and they don't see that coming until it happens and it's in their face. But they don't learn from it, right? Okay. Because they have a whole bunch of. So stuff. I'm conflating that, and that's not saving face. So what would be an example then of someone saving face? Well. I, um, this is from my, speaking from my personal experience, um, this is, maybe you don't think it that way, but to me, it's definitely a, a great example of uh, Vietnamese people trying to save their faces, you know, like, especially my dad, because um, I knew from a very young age that, you know, I'm a little bit different, I'm interested in, uh, I like guys and men, so I'm, I didn't know what it was, but I was, completely happy and okay with it until you know I, I was like 15 maybe 17 then I knew exactly what it was called you know like oh I'm gay which is fine but my dad um, after having heard it from me he almost had like a heart attack but then um, he took some time to deal with it and I thought and he thought that he was okay with it but deep down he really he still wanted to say Phase by he was like you have to marry uh, to get married and have kids even when you don't love the girl so 
you know, you can have a fake wife. Uh, we can have that secret deal, and people can, you know, I, his excuse was that I'm getting old, and I want my grandson right now to carry on the family's last name. But it's, it was more like the perfect picture that he wanted because you know, like. He started from nothing. Um, he started empty-handed, and he's built like a good. Um, he's built up everything from nothing from scratch. You know, like he now he has he's he's quite comfortable. You know, we're not super wealthy, but we're comfortable uh, financially. So the next thing he would want is you know like a perfect son who's married, has a good job, and has a perfect baby boy that would carry on the family last name. And so people wouldn't think that oh you you know you're a failure you failed as a dad uh, so that was like he didn't want he I don't think he could actually handle all that criticism uh, because Vietnamese tend to be really nasty when it comes to things like that um, let me tell you this like every time I go to a wedding especially a Vietnamese wedding and you see a bunch of relatives that you don't see very often you know distant relatives people from all over the country come together um, to celebrate. You know, two people getting married, um, and they approach you, and the first thing, the first thing that rolls, rolls out of their mouth, is usually, "Are you married? Are you dating someone?" And if you're already married, the next thing would be, "Got baby." Yeah. <laughs> Are you expecting <laughs> any more kids on the way? And if you're already pregnant, is he a boy? And after a boy, it's like. How much are you making right now? It's like okay, we're related, so I think the first thing that comes out of your mouth should be, "How have you been? You know, are you happy?" No, like we want to pry, we want nasty little private things that we're gonna, you know, we can go gosh, gossip to other people and tell. And eventually, they're gonna, you know, they, they're gonna tweak it. They're gonna add more, you know. They, I don't know. They, they're gonna change the story anyway. So. What's the point of telling the truth anyway? So, but the they, funny they, thing is, is I, I think we've talked about in the past is like when you've been here for so long and you forget how things are different for me as a, an expat. And the conversation you just said there, like I knew everything you were gonna say, and I know that's expected. Like when I first came here with my wife, it was like, oh, you're married? Have you got a baby? Like, and at first you're like, whoa, that's horrible. But now it's you know you you know it's coming. It it doesn't bother you. But as you're saying about a wedding there. I'm just transplanting myself, going back to a wedding in Scotland, and I saw one of my family members that I've not seen in ages, and they asked me those series of questions. I'd be like, "What? What? I, I wanted to swear, but I don't want to swear." You know, you'd you'd be completely offended. You'd be like, "Why are you asking me these questions?" So I think it's just an example of how culturally different Vietnam is to to the West and other countries, things like that. But I think. Uh, but the, th the thing is, you know, we're not happy with that either. Like the people who are getting asked. So why do they do it then? If no one's happy about it, why? Why is it? It's why a does it perpetuate? Thing, like, it's, like I have to ask it. You're expected um, to go through all those stages, uh, those steps. You know, when you hit a certain age, you know, you have to reproduce or something. You know, to save face because or else you're a failure. Your parents didn't raise you right. They didn't. They did something wrong or seriously wrong, to the point that you can get married because nobody wants you. So why is it so black and white? I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's so primitive. Like you have to reproduce. You know, you have to keep mm. the the lineage going. The, the the family last name. Yeah, it's very it's Game all, of Thrones. I know, right? <laughs> it's crazy. So, 
So you, your dad found out you were gay, he accepted that, but then you're talking about him saving face, so how is that manifested then? Oh, now? He, um, so he, he actually, um, he, I didn't want to do it the traditional way because he wanted a specific, he, he, he specifically wanted a son. So I was like, I'm going to, first of all, I'm gay. I'm not having sex with a woman, with a woman even though she's my fake wife, but we're not. So you have a fake wife? I'm married. Yeah. And we have a baby on the way. Congratulations. A son. Congratulations. Thank you. A test tube baby. So tell us about that then. So what happened there? Well, so I made it very clear um, that, uh, Dad, if you want to do this, then we're going to do it my way, you know, because we're both compromising here. You know, you can't just force me to keep trying until, you know, she pops out a baby boy. Because what if, you know, a girl comes along? Well, I was just talking to my colleague last week and she, she's got three sisters and one brother. And it was because, so there was like the four girls and then the brother was the fifth child. Because they kept having a kid until they had a boy and they needed to have five. But even my grandparents were, were pretty similar. My mum's one of three sisters and the boy was the fourth one because they had to keep trying for a boy. I don't know if the pressure was the same as, as Vietnam, but it was definitely something that my grandfather, like, he wanted to have a son. You know, so it's not, I don't think it's unique to Vietnam, but I think the fact that it's still such a pressure in Vietnam today is, is maybe a bit different. It's becoming less common now, which I'm glad. But uh, because my because of how traditional and conservative my family is, my mom is actually more open-minded. She's like, you know, kids, boys or girls, I don't really care. That's cool. She used to be like my dad, but now she's because we we've actually uh, we've actually had really personal like close conversations after you know the whole f- um, me coming out thing went down and it wasn't so good she was shocked she went into like complete shock but she took very little time to recover from that and she was like you know i don't care you know uh, i think you're a healthy person and i'm i don't think i failed i don't think i failed you or anyone beautiful but she couldn't handle all the nasty like um gossips because you know Mm -hmm. people kept telling her even like um her um relatives too that she felt me as a mom and it's terrible isn't it as if as if she had anything to do with that but i I try to get through to her the first two years was very tough but now she's getting um she's she's understanding and she's getting it now that what other people say don't um, doesn't really matter you know that's cool. That's she awesome. has to find peace within herself, mm. which she doesn't have, actually. She's, she relies a lot on other people mm. and what they think about her. Because it's the culture, right? It's, it's, it's really embedded in your... It is it, like it's It runs culture. in your blood, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like it's just all important, right? So do you want to tell me what happened with that? Like, did you come out or like they already knew or, or like what happened with that? Well, I think... My mom already had an idea, and my dad was pushing for um, for me to get married, and so um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why um, they 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 forced me to move back to Vietnam because I was in New York at that time and I wanted to stay, and I lied to them that I was applying to a a graduate school in New York for a um, virologist program. 
because I wanted to be. At first, I wanted to be a, a surgeon, and I really wanted it. But then I was real. I was like, no, I don't want to spend my whole life in the hospital, being on a call all the time, which sucks, you know. So I want more freedom. I want to do some. I, I want a job that I can be creative. So I wanted to, to to pursue a career in fashion, and so that's why I moved to New York because I wanted to apply to Parsons. But uh, I lied to my parents, and then they found out. How did they find out? I told them. <laughs> well, they didn't really find out then. You told them. <laughs> well, they they tricked me uh, into um, going back home for the summer. Right. I bought a um, a round trip ticket, and they told me that come home. You know, you haven't been home for like two or three years, you know, we want to see you, and I said, yes, yeah, I would, I would fly back, because, you know, yeah, you're right, I haven't been home for ages, so I went home, and we had that crazy, serious conversation about my, you know, sexual orientation, and uh, my sexuality, and they broke down, and I was like, okay, might as well tell them that I want to go to a fashion school, because, I don't know, maybe because I was pissed and I was really confused and uh, freaked out. So I, I was just like, you know, the cat's out the back. So might as well mm, just go all in. So I, yeah, I spilled the beans and they were not happy. And what and was one, the fallout from that then? They they wouldn't let you go back to America. It was like a tug of war, actually. Yeah, I wanted to go back, and my dad knew how much I w- I wanted to go back to New York. Um, so at one point he did make me an offer. He was like. You can go back. I'll give you the money to support you for the next two or three years, and then you're on your own. And I'll, um, um, you know, we're, um, we're cutting ties. It was like I, we don't. This family doesn't want anything to do with you. You know, if you decide to go back to New York, you know, I'll, I'll fulfill my responsibility as a father, and I'll, I'll support you financially for the next three or f- um, two or three years, and after that, you're cut off no ties whatsoever wow. back to this family and at one point I was like yeah <laughs> definitely yeah freedom hello yeah, yeah. So, but then I was like no I mean this is still my family you know I was mm. born and raised here this is home you know? yeah, yeah I definitely do want a home to come back to to go back to so I didn't take him up on that offer and I'm glad I didn't because now I'm actually happy being back here I'm not that crazy reckless 26 year old <laughs> that awesome. I was yeah four years ago <laughs> so so let's just jump back a little bit then so you obviously got good enough grades from all the pressure and the fear of spanking to get into college so you went to college in America right so where did you go what did you study there tell us about that because so as obviously anyone who's listening can hear your English is, is excellent Thank you. and um, your pronunciation is you know really really good so I sometimes, so, so I, I know Daniel and sometimes we have a conversation and you forget a word or even a couple of times when today you, you forget a phrase and then I forget that you're speaking in your second language because your pronunciation and your English is so good. So sometimes when you're like, what's the word again? And I'm like, what? and then I'm like, oh yeah, he speaks, <laughs> English is his second language. That, but what was your English like before you left then? And was it already good? And at what point did you get this American accent? I think before I moved to um, to California, my I was pre- I wouldn't say it was great, but I was comfortable with my you know English. Uh, Where were you learning at school or private lessons? Or? So many 
places, private tutors, um, language centers, public schools, you know, language right. centers. And so you were already quite competent before you went to America. Yeah, and I actually learned, uh, I learned it myself just watching movies, um, first uh, with subtitles and then after that without subtitles, trying to figure out what they're saying, uh, what's going on, and listen to, you know, listening to music actually helped me a lot. Um, I love music uh, in, in English. Right. And so what did you study then in America and where did you go? You went to Southern California? No, um, I was actually, uh, I landed in the Bay Area, um, which is up north. Um, right. 30 minutes away from San Francisco. So I was really close to Silicon Valley, um, San Jose, that whole Apple, mm. eBay, Amazon area. All right. What was the name of the university you went to? I went to a public school, state school. Um, it's called California State University. All right. Cool. And so what was that experience like as a, as a foreigner? It was weird because I grew up listening to black music. So the moment I went there, um, they placed me in an international house which um, where all the international students usually end up because you know first year international um, students we tend to be shy and you know we're not familiar with the culture so they thought that would be the best for all of us but I actually I went out and I started hanging out with a bunch of like black Americans and it was <laughs> weird it was weird because they smoke weed they yeah. they do drugs and they talk about guns and they curse and this was your classmates like your, they went to the same school as you or like just people you met walking down the street like sophomores and well yeah, yeah um i mean um they were fellow students yes yeah right, right. yeah but like um older right so a bit of a yeah. culture shock yeah so i spent six months living in the international house and then i was like i've had enough i'm moving out because i couldn't stand it so i moved out and i requested to be put in a like uh, like a normal ordinary American dormitory uh, like dorm you yeah. know and so they they uh, they put me in an apartment with one f gay Filipino American and two black guys and it was the greatest one of the great, <laughs> one of the best years you know um, in America for me actually because we um, we had so much fun you know I, I thought it would be awkward and they thought it would, it would be weird, but we, you know, we, I fit it right in. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, so, like, do you know at what point you, you developed, like, an American accent? Or it was quite quickly because you'd been watching so many movies or... I, I don't think my accent was that good before I moved to California. Mm -hmm. I think I picked it up in California. And so I, I, I perfected it while I was in California because I, I loved uh, English, you know, I... Mm -hmm. And so I was paying attention to, to the way, you know, Americans pronounce certain words and if I was doing it right or if I at one point I think I wanted to to be able to speak Ebonics too so because of the people that I surrounded myself with so I kind of subconsciously picked it up right right cool and so we've already um, I've already interviewed Kim Kim Nguyen uh, a few episodes ago and she went to the UK to study and we I'll ask you a couple of the same questions that I asked her as well so one is, did you experience any racism when you were in America? Not that much, actually. But maybe because I never noticed it. Maybe um, maybe there was. Maybe people were uh, not comfortable with me being an international student trying to hang out with a, 
a bunch of black folks, but uh, I never actually cared because mm. I, I enjoyed what, what I was doing at that time mm. because I, I grew up listening to the music. And so I, I, I've gotten myself familiar, uh, you know, I familiarized myself with that culture. Mm. So at one point, I don't think I, I wouldn't say I, I identified myself with that culture, but I, I thought it was very... Mm, familiar. Yeah, you didn't feel that place. What what music specifically was it that you grew up listening to that you were then listening to in America? A little bit of pop, and then I switched to R uh, R and B and a little bit of soul. So it was. I thought I, I was more like an outcast, but my two black roommates actually very liked it. He was like, "Oh, he listened to Jasmine Sullivan," <laughs> and I sang it all the time <laughs> to the point that he knocked on my door three times a day, telling me to shut up. <laughs> Because he was trying to sleep, <laughs> <laughs> but that that's good. Because yeah, when we spoke to Kim, she she didn't really experience much racism. I mean, any racism is bad. But um, the other question I asked her was: at any point did somebody uh, they they knew you were like a foreign student and didn't realize that you could understand English? So then you overheard them saying something disparaging or something bad. I don't think I don't no. I don't think yeah. I don't think it ever happened to me. It was more like the other way around. You know, like I wouldn't think that I would be able to understand Vietnamese and they actually spoke to me in Vietnamese. <laughs> Go on, give me that. What happened with that? Give me an example of that one. <laughs> I was... So, you know how in San Jose, um, which uh, was 30 minutes from where... Uh, which is 30 minutes from where I used to live. Um, I lived in Hayward because I went to school. My, my, the, the college that I went to was, is in Hayward. So, uh, down south, 30 minutes, um, is San Jose. And so I spend most of my weekends down there with my friends. So, um, I reconnected with my, uh, friends from middle school who was still living in, uh, who were actually living in San Jose at that time. So, you know, we formed a group. So we used to hang out together all the time, you know, just me and a bunch of girls. <laughs> so... One time we went to a Vietnamese slash Chinese supermarket. So you kind of assume when, because I, you know, I had been there like a Brazilian times and mostly Vietnamese people or Chinese people shop there, you know. And one time this black lady walked in and I turned around, you know, telling my friends that, what is she doing here? You know, I guess I was being a racist. You were saying this in Vietnamese? Yeah, to her, to my friend, mm. who was right next to me. And then she approached me, asking me in Vietnamese, like, where do I find this and that? And I was like, what the, f-? you know, what the F? And, and then I asked her further uh, questions, and I found out that she was actually half Vietnamese. She's mixed, you know, half black, half Asian, uh, Vietnamese. So that's the reason why she could speak it uh, and understand it well. And I was like, screw me. <laughs> you don't have to be really careful. <laughs> And one time, I was in line too. You never expect that though, right? Like, never. But I never learn. You know, I keep doing it. <laughs> because I kind of assume that people don't understand Vietnamese around here. But, yeah, yeah. you know, some people do. And especially when you're in a city where you have a huge Vietnamese, com- uh, you know, Vietnamese community, you have to be careful. But I, I, it never... And so it happened again? You got caught out again? Yeah, it never Go hit on. me. Go on. One blonde guy, actually. Oh, maybe he was like a dark brunette, or maybe. Oh, but he was obviously white. Okay, yeah. I'm south. Sal- is I'm this Sal- in Saigon or this is in America? Back in San Jose, back in the state. at a supermarket again, yeah. and he was in line, and so he was trying to buy something, 
And, you know, I was talking to my friend, like, we were standing in line right behind him, and we were just talking about him, like, behind his back, like, literally behind his back. <laughs> like, what were you saying about... Oh, he, he was with, like, an, like an older um, Asian lady. So I was like, sugar mama, maybe? And she was Vietnamese, <laughs> and his mom. And he could speak a little bit of Vietnamese, because he was mixed, and I was like, oh... <laughs> Stupid me. <laughs> did he say anything to you? I don't think he heard it. Or maybe he did, but I was just like, okay, let's just walk away. <laughs> because he turned around talking to her and calling her mom. I was like, oh, screw us. Oh, this is a... no. <laughs> and so you have to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> so Watch moving me. on, another question I asked Kim was, um, and I remember reading this a few years back, not long after I'd moved here, was that when you're a returning um overseas student and you come back to Vietnam you face a different set of pressures is they expect you to get a much better job than a person who's been here their whole life you know they expect you to make more money to work for a huge big companies you know big corporates you know so because just because you you know you you've studied abroad and you know and you're a vet Q now so you're supposedly you're better than an average Vietnamese person so you have to make more money you have to have a better job and is they that expect the is that the reality of the situation it's not always true because a lot of us well I don't I'm not gonna generalize because I, I, I saying a lot of us is probably not true but you know, me personally, I came back and I was lost. So I don't know if it happens to a bunch of like international students, um, Vietnamese students who have studied abroad and come back. Interesting. Yeah. Because you've had this experience six years, nearly seven years in America. Yes. And I lived in America for four years and you, that becomes like your home. Right. And so then, so that's interesting. So what do you, how did you, how did you feel lost then when you came back to Vietnam? Because when I was in New York, before I moved back to Vietnam, I, I had a different plan and I was ready to put it in motion, um, put it into motion. And I wanted to, to, I was working on my uh, portfolio for, uh, uh, Parsons, uh, an art school because, well, fashion school as well, but I wanted to go to Parsons and become hopefully, you know, a famous designer one day internationally recognized but wow and then so it was at that point then that your dad was like you have to come back home so you know let's go back home because we haven't seen you in ages so right. go back home we miss you and so we're gonna have a little family reunion for the three summer months um mm. long and i said yes you know yeah and i did and then so after that how long were you in the states before then you came back to vietnam for good what do you mean? Or did you never go back to America after that? Oh, we had that heated conversation and... Nope. Um, oh, that was it? Yeah. What about all your stuff in America? Well, I had to ask my roommate um, to pack it all up. Uh, I ended up with uh, 11 boxes. Like, the, the super size that you get from Home Ooh. Depot. <laughs> your roommate had to pack up your whole life for you. Well, I backed him because, I, you know, my whole closet and everything. His oh parents, too, because his goodness. parents were actually in New York visiting yep. him so his parents actually helped him helped me <laughs> pack up my, my crap wow so your parents still come home we'll have a reunion we want to see you for the summer and then that was it you never went back yeah 
Wow. So I had everything packed up, uh, my computer, yeah, yeah. my <laughs> whole closet. I can see why you would be lost then when you, when you came back. You probably didn't care what people thought about you as a returning student, like you said. No, I was not in that kind of mood. Yeah, I was just yeah. like, I don't know where life is going to take me. Like, yeah. I don't know what the next phase will be. Mm. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I need to figure it out. So I was really, like, deep in my thoughts, mm. my own thoughts. So I really didn't really... And this is where, like, you know, we talked about years earlier, the strict, you know, you have to get good grades, you have to do this, you have to do engineering... And then now you're like a young adult, you want to do fashion, you want to sing, and all of a sudden, you weren't, you weren't allowed to do any of that, right? Yeah. Nope. Yeah, that's a lot to cope with. But I made peace with myself since mm. then, actually. Um, I, I've tried different things, and now I'm happy, so... That's know. awesome. That's good to hear. Yeah, I love food, too, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. We're going to talk about food in a little minute. I just want to ask you, because I think... Um, Perceptions of Vietnam are not the reality when you live here. Uh, and I have actually seen this come up on Reddit and I've seen it come up on um, Facebook as well. People asking before they come here, like, I'm gay. What's it like in Vietnam? Like, what am I going to be accepted? You know, because people don't know. Of course, they don't until they get here. So what is it like as a gay man in Saigon or in Vietnam? Cause I think that's, there's also a, a difference, right, between Saigon and Vietnam. Saigon is a big multicultural city. You go out to the Vietnamese countryside or anywhere outside of Saigon, it's almost a different country, right? Or am I wrong? I don't know. Yes, uh, culturally, uh, the basics are still technically the same, but um, people tend to be more westernized here um, living in Saigon, you know. And further, uh, the farther you are from the, the, the big city, you know, the more rural the area is, is different. I mean, I can't really say much because I, you know, I haven't really experienced it that much. So. Mm. They don't mm. have like pride parades down in like oh, the countryside or anything being a, like that. Being a gay man in the countryside is actually, actually um, a few months ago I was dating a Vietnamese guy. Um, he said, I did ask him the same question. So He was from the countryside. Yeah, he was born and raised from, um, um, in a really small town um, in um, Binh Phu. Mm. You know where that is? So it's it like Ho Chi Minh City and then Binh Yun. Right. Binh Phu. Oh, okay. Right next to it. So not that far away from the mm. city. Maybe like a two-hour, three-hour drive. Right. Yeah. Or maybe you can take one of those shuttles. Yeah. Jang. Yeah. So it's not that far away. But um, people, is, people, he said that they get married all, all the time over there. Like, even in a small town. Like, gay guys these days. Mm. I guess people are more, people are more tolerating I wouldn't say accepting, like celebrate, celebrate, you know, um, the diversity, but they're more tolerating mm. and they don't talk, they gossip about it. Oh, you know, that one's gay and he's finally getting married. Oh, the other one's gay too. So they gossip, but mm. they don't talk shit about, or they don't hate on you. They just, they yeah, like to gossip and, yeah, and then they'll let it go. Eventually, you know, boom, yeah. um, gone. People will go back to their own, their, their, their own business. So if someone was thinking about coming to Saigon, you know, LGBTQ, what would you say to them if they had any reservations or any questions about coming here? Um, I think it's actually, um, especially Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City as they call it now, um, it's more accepting towards um, the LGBTQ um, community. But I guess because it, it, at the end of the day, it, it boils down to the, the, 
more carefree attitude that most Vietnamese have. We don't care. It's not like we we don't even. Well, obviously the the LGBT uh, the LGBT people here do celebrate pride and stuff like that. But the regular people who don't have anything to do with it, they don't care. Mm. It's not their business. They mind their own business usually. Yeah. But in Thai in 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 Thailand, maybe people tend to celebrate it more, or maybe they don't care mm. either. So. That's always been my kind of thoughts when I've seen those questions come up. Obviously, I don't know, but it seems like people just don't care. Like there doesn't seem to be much discrimination. Maybe yeah. there is. is there discrimination, or like are you denied jobs? Or are you denied housing? Like are you denied opportunities because of your sexual orientation? Or literally, like people just don't care. People just don't care. Yeah. As long as you can get the job done, done. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. That that's the feeling that I get. Yeah. No matter how flamboyant or how crazy you. You are. You're yeah. fine. Yeah. And would you not say that would probably be a massive misconception for most people thinking of Vietnam from the outside? Probably see it as a very conservative country and think like. Oh, actually, if you go up north, it's actually <laughs> a huge thing. Actually, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of gay men um, from Hanoi, like big cities like Hanoi up north, they they want to move down here because up there pe- people will talk you down. They'll talk. Right. And many gay men in the north. Who 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 don't want to move or who want to stay end up getting married to a woman. Yeah, and mm-hmm. having kids. You know, um, yeah. hiding their true, um, mm. you know, sexuality and right. um, living like a double life. So to sum it up, if you're part of the LGBT community and you want to fit in, or you want to feel like you're not being discriminated against. I think um, Saigon would be the best choice, or maybe Da Nang, actually, but not up north. Yeah. Yeah, because um, you you don't want to be sneaking around. You want mm. Mm, to be accepted. You want to be. You want it to be okay for you to you know just do your things and be who you are. Mm. I think Saigon is very accepting of that. Yeah, I really do get the sense that people just don't care, which is it's quite refreshing, right? Yeah, we do have a few uh, gay clubs, or we used to have quite a few gay clubs back in the day but they went out of business because people stopped going to those places not because you know they were being discriminated against it just maybe the drinks sucked or the well, music no, gay, wasn't gay, good gay enough clubs around the world gay bars around the world are all shut, shutting down but i think it's because because it's just much more accepting now that you don't need a separate bar for gay people you know what I mean? Like, bar, you can be gay and go to any bar, whereas even 10, 15, 20 years ago, you couldn't walk into a bar with a boyfriend or right. a girlfriend, you know what I mean? Like, maybe like, you've got your own bar to go to. But whereas now, like, you know, why do we need a gay bar? We just need bars for people. It goes beyond that, actually. It's go more on. complex than that. Right. It's more like going to the market and pick out your meat. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair. Well... Because now you you have grinder. Well, uh, that's what I was gonna say. To counter that, what I did well, read still, is the reason that gay bars are closing down is because of grinder, because they're not necessary to go and pick up meat, as you said. Some people prefer it the 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 traditional, the old traditional way. Yeah. Like going to a gay bar because you can see the whole package. Mm. You can check out the goods, which to me is not something that I would do. Like if I'm going to a gay club uh, with my straight or gay friends, I don't care. Mm. For me, is to have a good time, yeah. you know, uh, good drinks, you know, nice music, and we can have a conversation, or we can, um, we can talk about whatever, you mm. know. Uh, but technically, you're surrounded by 
your own people, the people from the same community, and you feel like you'll fit in there. But usually, gay people, when we get together, we tend to judge. So, you know, it's, it gets a little bit catty. So, <laughs> it's, since that's when you put on your don't give. DGAF? Yeah, you don't, don't give a crap face, yeah, you know, yeah. and just pay attention to your friends, you mm. know, um, and just hang out with your friends. You know, look around and see if people are judging you or people are saying nasty things about you. It doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. It's, it's all about having a good time, you know. So we'll move on to the, the final part of the podcast where I ask the same questions um, every episode. But I've got, got a specific question then for you because of what we've just been talking about. Um, tell us where are the best gay bars in Saigon then? Back in the day, the only... <laughs> One that we used to have was uh, Republic. They shut down, but obviously they found themselves uh, uh, in new locations. So they're um, they're they're at Bui Vien right now, of course. And there's a new one that just opened up um, three months ago, and I've been there once because one of my friends, uh, Gavin, he's from the UK as well. He um he hosts um a lot of events there, like different events on different days of the week. So And what's it called? Um the bar uh is called uh the Tipsy Unicorn. You <laughs> can see how gay the name is. Yes, yeah, name. it's cute though. Uh and I can see why gay guys go there because yeah. you can see a lot of eye candy just walking around. So people I was there one night with my friends, uh two Vic, he was from um, Melbourne, uh from Australia. Uh they come back and visit like once a year mm. to see their relatives and so mm, we went there to hang out and people were eyeing each other and I was like uh, let's get out of here so so the questions now that I ask every week uh, or every episode uh, first question what are your top three Vietnamese foods me personally I love gum uh, tam I grew up eating it I spent my whole middle middle school and high school years eating it for seven years straight, every morning. And for anyone mm. that doesn't know what's come down? It's like um, white rice, but when you, um, how do you, how do I put it, how do I put this? Um, when you scrub the grains to get the, the skin off the rice grains, some of the, the grains actually get broken into little small pieces. And uh, Vietnamese, we don't like that. We like whole grain, you know, steamed rice. So the broken little pieces, you know, um, but we don't want to waste them either. So we collect them and we call that broken rice. Mm. And we steam them just like regular white rice, but it has a different texture. So um, we like sticky, moist, um, you know, cooked rice, but the broken rice, because, because the grains are broken into little pieces, so they tend to separate. So a lot of Vietnamese don't like that. I love it personally. <laughs> yeah. And so number two and three? Oh crap. Uh, <laughs> two and three. I would say pho, but it's too typical. I don't I don't, I don't even pho. I don't even like that. I don't even like it that much. I I mean I don't hate it. I'm not I'm go I don't go crazy for it. So what would be number one's come down, second and third favorite foods favorite Vietnamese foods? That's a tough question, actually. I don't. Oh, um, I'm more into Japanese food these days, but Kamtam is still at the top okay. of my list. Yes, but uh, if I have to pick a second, the third, I would yep. say um, a. Jesus, um, 
I never thought a Vietnamese person would struggle with this question so much. She lived in America for far too long. For me, it's everyday come down. I can eat, it for, I can eat it for breakfast, <laughs> lunch, and dinner, and I would, supper, and everything. I would accept that, and that's three meals, and that's three meals. Um, to anyone who's listened before knows that I'm a big craft beer fan. Um, what's your favorite bar and your favorite beer? Um... Uh, Recent discovery, uh, Layla. I love that place. I've been to quite a few bars in the city, um, you know, straight and gay, and I love Layla because uh, I don't like the way it is now. But when they first started out, they didn't really have as many. It doesn't sound like a nice thing to say, but when they first started out, um, when they first opened up, um, when they first opened, they didn't have as many customers. So the ambience was great. You know, you can actually go there and have a. The drinks are very well made. Like tastes amazing so you can go there with your friends you can have a nice conversation over some good music in the background but these days because it's you know because of how popular mm. it is people love that place so people you know they they all go to Layla and yeah on- I haven't thought about that yeah Layla is, was for a, for a spell was one of our favorite cocktail bars to go to and we'd go there kind of semi-often but you're right, yeah, it was always quite cool and it was like a good ambiance. But yeah, the last couple of times I've been, it's been like packed. Packed and crowded. Yeah. You can barely have a conversation yeah, there because yeah. the music is loud and people talk even louder. Yeah. The drinks are still great and they have happy hours uh, yeah. and the prices are good. So. That's when we'd normally go. I'm Scottish, so we want to go for the happy hour. Me too. Yes. <laughs> what would be your favorite daytime place to hang out or to go for a drink? Across uh, the street from my restaurant, cheese coffee. <laughs> they, they do have good drinks. Uh, they have milk tea because they um, they make their tea really strong. Foklong used to be one of my favorite places. Yeah. Or Mariko for Japanese desserts. And so what one thing would you change about Saigon? Uh, traffic. Horrible. Hectic. I like it. Don't get me wrong. I like it that way. Like I like how hectic it is because, you know, everywhere you go... In the city, I haven't been to many different countries, you know, only the U.S., Thailand, and Vietnam. Thailand is just crazy. Uh, Vietnam has a, a certain charm to it. I like it. But, you know, now, now, nowadays, people, back in the day, a lot, not a lot of people could afford a, a car, you know. Like, but these days, everyone wants a car, and they can afford it. And, and so they're all SUVs they park as well. Every frick- see, that's the thing. You, you you go out in the street, and you see a bunch of SUVs running around, driving around with one person in there. Yeah. And it takes, it's like a giant box in the middle of a street that takes up too much space, and everyone else has to, and it drives every other bikers on, on the sidewalks, on the pavements, mm-hmm. you know. And then the sidewalks get all beaten up. And the sidewalks are a mess. And we get shit for, uh, we get a lot of crap for, you yeah. know, driving on the sidewalk. But we, you know, we're in a rush and these giant SUVs are mm. blocking our ways. So, well, it's not that civilized, but I'm not even proud of it. No, no, I do, I, it, too, I do but, it too. Yeah, I, know. I need to get stuff done because, you know, I'm in a rush. Or things well, like it's that. frustrating when you're on a road where there, if there was just bikes, there would be plenty of room. But then, but even in three years that I've been here, it's completely changed. Like three years ago, there were some cars on the road. Everywhere. Now they're everywhere. And then it's not even that they're just cars. They're all SUVs. They've all got one person in them. And you, like, you look at the road ahead of you and you're like, this is three lanes of cars. And then the bikes are all... And taxis and grabs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's... In America, they have a problem. They have carpool lanes. You know, you need to yeah. have more than two people to, 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 
to go yeah. into like a high speed lanes, and that's great. But we can't do that here in Vietnam because our streets are so narrow and small. Mm. But that's the thing too; they let people park their cars like all over the street, um, and that takes up space. Yeah. And so something again. So what do you think? What's the most misunderstood thing about Saigon? That we are not that. I think a lot of people assume that uh, we're like a decade behind, um, or maybe we're not as friendly towards, mm, you know, um, like the U.S. would say, uh, aliens and or outsiders, mm. foreigners. But we we can be quite friendly, and we can be quite open-minded. I don't think we're really that backwards. Um, I think we're we're making. A lot of progress, um, mm. so we're moving forward. Really it's catching quickly. up quickly. I think when yeah. I first came here, people said that Vietnam or Saigon was like twenty, twenty-five years behind, like Seoul and Korea. Mm. But for every year, it catches up like two or three years. You know, so it is behind in terms of infrastructure, development, traffic management, everything like that. But it's catching up at a rapid, rapid speed. But yeah, it could be a problem too because I don't know if we could ever be like uh, South Korea now. Maybe in another fifty years, I don't see it coming. You think fifty years? I don't. F I'm not sure. Um, maybe one day mm. something huge will happen and it'll change everything. Hopefully, but well, I think I'll be around to see it happen. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully. hopefully. And uh, what's your favorite place to get out of town? Because the reason I ask this is, and I've mentioned it every episode, it's big here, it's busy, it's noisy, and sometimes you've just got to get out of Saigon, take a breather. Where would you, where's your go-to place to just get out of town? I actually don't. Um, I've always been a city boy my whole life, so I, I actually, I like it. I like so you, don't need, you don't need to get out of town. See, that's the reason why I fit it right in when I moved to New York. Yeah. Or, you know, I spent some time um, in Bangkok, and I yeah. loved it. And here, I... I'm I'm quite comfortable here. I feel I feel at home. So. <laughs> so last question: What advice would you give to somebody who's thinking of living in Saigon? Well, make the most of it because it's actually I think it's going to be a great experience. It's going to be fun, and you make a lot of friends, and you know you. It open your eyes. Really, it's going to be an eye opening experience. It's going to be so much different than the West. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, thank you very much, Daniel. This has been uh, super interesting. Really, uh, some we've covered a lot, <laughs> but it's been super, really, really interesting. So, thank you. I really enjoyed this, and I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. As I mentioned right at the beginning, um, you own Hungry Bunny. So, tell us about Hungry Bunny. Um, what's happening there? We're specialized in burgers and uh, sandwiches and salads and American diner food. And but I do want to take it up a little, a little bit like a notch. Uh, I want to make it more gourmet with quality ingredients. So uh, when I first, when we first started out, there weren't that many restaurants around that were focused on burgers. You had um, that was Chuck's, that was Soul Burger. But I think those were. Well, Matt House too, but those were the three main competitors. So that's why I wanted to to do burgers. But now you can see every you you, you can see that you you can find a burger store every 
basically everywhere in every district in the city which is a great thing because i'm happy because you know it's becoming more popular but then i also have more competition we'll, we'll see <laughs> what makes your burgers the best do you think um i like our beef uh we use uh we used to use frozen australian beef but now we use uh, chilled um beef which makes the texture and the taste more uh flavorful and I'm very confident in our beef patties because you know we make them in house and I've tasted them myself. So, but <laughs> and you know American food, right? I hope so. <laughs> right. So Daniel uh, said that for anyone who's listening to this podcast, if they come in to Hungry Bunny and tell them that they they, they listen to the podcast, he's going to give you thirty percent off your bill. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Please do come by. <laughs> Daniel, check us out. Daniel didn't know that, but if you, would you do that? Would you do that offer? Oh yes, I'd love to. There you go. I just put him on the spot, but he says that's okay. So go and tell Daniel that you listen to him on Seven Million Bikes, and I'd love to meet new people. There give him discounts. Yes. Awesome. To try my food. <laughs> Let me know what you think. Well, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Seven Million Bikes, a Saigon podcast. Thank you to Daniel for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. So thanks again. I hope you enjoyed that episode and I hope you can tune in for, for more. Thanks for listening again to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, the Saigon podcast. hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel. Um, I found it fascinating. Most of all, uh, really interesting to hear how accepting the LGBTQ community is here in Saigon especially. So if anyone's wondering about that or thinking about coming here, it's a pretty safe space. Uh, as always, thank you very much to Lewis Wright for composing our theme music. As always, it gets the most feedback, which I'm so thrilled to, to hear. I pass all feedback about the music onto him straight away, so I know he loves to hear that, so keep giving me it. And also a massive thank you to Len Nguyen for helping design the cover art, which you can see all over our website, Facebook, everywhere that we are now. We're on Instagram and YouTube as well. Check us out there. And um, if you want to leave a review, that'd be massively helpful. It's also nice. I'd love to hear from you. Leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's now known. Or you can also go to Facebook. Uh, send me a message. Let me know what you think of the podcast. It's always great to hear from people. Started getting a couple of emails and messages through. We've had some suggestions for guests. So if there's anyone in Saigon that you'd like to hear from, then just let me know as well. We'll definitely look into that. That would be, um, that would be awesome. And remember, you can listen to um, 7 Million Bikes almost anywhere these days. You can get, get it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, and now Google Podcasts as well. And obviously the website, www.7millionbikes.com. So thanks for listening. Hope you can keep tuning in and enjoy further episodes. Thanks very much. hope you enjoyed this episode if you're like me you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public wi-fi this opens you up to digital snoopers it's a massive problem 
It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease, and I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.